A BOAC flight is trying to fly its last leg from Tokyo to Hong Kong when the flight is viciously shook. What caused this flight to crash into Mount Fuji in pieces? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Oh, hey. It's been a while. Yeah, we... Because uh, these two had the Rona. We took an accidental week off. Yeah. <laughs> because we had the COVID-19, a.k.a. coronavirus, a.k.a. COVID, a.k.a. The Rona. The Rona, a.k.a. the vid. A.k.a. block. Yeah. I, I somehow did not get it. Nope. Again. Again. Yep. I'm pretty sure I'm one of those people that just doesn't get COVID. Yep. Keep knocking on wood, though, because you I never know. know. You're know. the one around I, all the kids. <laughs> you know, I would think that if, because it's going around school right now, too. Yeah. Like, a, a lot of the adults are getting it and stuff. Yeah. Nope, nothing. Well, and even then, maybe you had it, like, minorly at some point, but you didn't know. I don't know. It, that's a possibility. Me? I, I didn't have it that bad. <clears throat> you had it. I was worse. coughing up blood. It was great. Yeah. yeah. That's Caitlin right now, too. Uh-huh. Did not get it from us, I don't think. I don't think so. Um, we weren't really. I wasn't. Her. I wasn't symptomatic the last time I saw her, and it was five days after my positive test, which is the current recommendation, I believe. It is. I don't know. I ain't a scientist. Anyway, or a doctor. But everything's fine. It's been a while for you. It has normal. not been a while, but for us, it has been a while. Yes. We're double recording today. We are We're to catch up. Two episodes for the price of one. Yeah. <laughs> you don't get two episodes. No. We just have to record two episodes. Right. And uh, <laughs> because of that, the post episode for the second episode, so the one for next week, will probably be short. Yes. And also, there won't be much new to report on the next episode. So we'll just be rolling. There are a few patrons we do have to thank. Ah. Before I forget, because we've had a few people come in. Excellent. Let's see here. We got Madden. Mm -hmm. I believe Mm -hmm. that's... Sorry if I said your name wrong. Mm -hmm. They might be returning. I don't think so. They're new. Okay. And Pre, which may be returning, but I don't think so. I don't don't think think so so either. Mm -mm. And then let me just double check and make sure there's nobody else. Cheryl. I don't believe we've thanked Cheryl yet. I don't think so. Thanks. And Elias. Elias. Ah! Thanks. Four people. Four people. What happens in an extra week? There's, there, there, the, the, two of you are paying with euros and one is paying with Canadian dollars. Yes. Tells me that you might be from the Canadian land and the Europe land. (laughs) Sure. We'll go with that. (laughs) We can look up where you're actually from, but that's a lot of work that I don't want to do right now. Yeah. We would never say it on air, so. No. But thank you so much for your patronage. We do appreciate you. Thanks. And thanks for everybody for listening, by the way. Yeah. Because I know we we make jokes about, like, Patreon stuff a lot. Or I do. But it's a joke. We do appreciate everyone listening. Yes, we do. You don't just have to give us your money. No. But it would be great. But also, if you want to give us all your money. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, oh, a few things, too, that I said I would address before we begin the episode. There is a listener of ours that, I believe his name is Ethan. Someone pointed out that we done goofed. Well, okay. I wouldn't... Sometimes we done goof. It Yes. There was a thing that we actually goofed on. I am a goof. So... Therefore. Two episodes ago, I believe, we Mm -hmm. said that... 7,500 7,600. Or 7,600 was hijack. It's not. Yeah. 
No. It's that's radio. a radio issue. Yes, you're right. 7,600 yes. is hijacked. No, 7,500 is right. hijacked. Right, right, right. That's I have what, it right here. Backward, My yes. brain just definitely <laughs> yes. flipped those. Had it, but had it backward. We said 7,600 is 7,500. Yes. Sorry. Good. Had that backward. You're yes. right. We done goofed. Uh, Thank you for the correction. also asked if people would recommend more helicopter accidents, which... For full transparency, there's like no helicopters in the next year, as far as I'm aware, because we are booked out a year right now. We're booked out a year! We are actually booked out over an entire year, finally. Yes. Which is crazy to me. But... Hard to imagine. He expressed that he would like for us to do more helicopter accidents, because he is a helicopter pilot. The ironic thing is to that, that we did get a helicopter accident as a recommendation, I don't know whether or not we can do it yet. Yeah, we have to look at the report. And even if we can, it will be more than a year away. Yeah. So. <laughs> and it was recommended by one of our patrons. Yes. Who we actually got to finally speak to for the first time in a long time. Yes, last night. Yeah. Yes. Hello, Chris. Hi, Chris. <laughs> and just for transparency reasons, we on the show do say a lot that pilots, when it's pilot error, I should say, mm-hmm. that pilots make dumb decisions. Which is somebody true, did a dumb, but it does we not also... necessarily speak to the person being dumb. Yeah, right? No, we were not in the cockpit. We are Monday morning quarterbacking. Yes, we are the... always Monday morning quarterbacking. And it's it's more take it with a grain of salt. We're not actually bashing them as a human being because no. we don't know them. But the action in and of itself may have seemed a little dumb. questionable in the moment. Yeah, we do say those things a lot because to us. On the outside, that's what it seems like. But again, we are not in the cockpit while it's happening, so who knows, right? Mm-hmm. So we've discussed this before, but just to reiterate, we're not... The the things that we say on the show are done so after the fact, Yes. after we understand the facts and after the report has come out about what happened. And take so. it with a grain of salt. That exactly. is all. That is all. We're not trying to say that we know better than the pilots, because we don't. Uh, some of them. Well. 2020 hindsight. <laughs> right now. <laughs> After some of these accidents, we know some things we didn't know in the past, and right. that is why we talk about these things on the podcast. So, those were like the three big things. Also, I'm sorry, Ethan, we're not changing how we're naming our episodes. We're but, just not going to do it. But that said... We appreciate you listening. Yes. And we appreciate- And sending in recommendations, because you have had- We appreciate all feedback. Yes. Yes. Thanks. Any kind of feedback is good feedback. Yes. Sometimes. <laughs> I have That's to a say, little hypocritical. Well, okay. Some of the stuff we've gotten on like Apple Podcasts, I'm like, or like the reviews, I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay. I haven't looked at those in a while. But like this kind of feedback where it's like, hey, you screwed up this Constructive number. feedback. Exactly. Yes. Totally- Thank you. Like, yes. we get it. I, I done goofed up because I done be a goof. So we're human. I get it. <laughs> so we're, we're just as stupid as sometimes we say that the people on the podcast are. So, you know. Yes. So it's just the truth. Like, like I said, thank you for the feedback. Those are the, the few things I wanted to address while we were here and had time. Because this episode is going to be shorter, whereas our next one, not so much. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering BOAC 911. Which is recommended by a bunch of people. Thank you to Matt, G, Terry, and Tasha for all recommending this. Yes. Lots of recommendations for this one. And I started to find out why the more I dove in. Because the report is not actually very long, 
and it doesn't provide as much of the background as understanding what actually happened around this time. We'll talk about that later on. That'll probably be more in the second half, because there's not much in the second half, I'll put it that way. But this accident occurred on March 5th of 1966. This was a Boeing 707-400, or 436, that's the specific variant that they were flying. BOAC is one of the precursors to British Airways, so they were one of the biggest airlines on the planet, and they were the biggest airline in the UK at the time, I believe. They kept, British Airways kept BOAC's call sign. Yes. It was Speedbird. Yep. And... There's been some retro BOAC birds over the years, painted in BOAC colors. It, they were actually, they were a pretty prominent airline throughout history, and we've talked about them a few times, obviously. But this one, without exception, is quite eventful. Made quite the mark on history, too. This one had the tail number Golf-Alpha-Papa-Foxtrot-Echo. Being a 707, at the time, because this was the 60s, this was their long-range bird. This was what they used to fly around the world as quickly as possible. But, mind you, because the 707's range wasn't very good, I mean, it was better than a lot of the prop aircraft that they had been flying, they could carry more passengers at a decent distance a lot faster, but they still had to make stops. But what airlines tended to do at the time, and don't get me wrong, this still happens a little bit today, but nowhere near as much as it did back then, is they would operate services to very far away destinations, but stop at other destinations along the way that they would actually drop off passengers, pick up passengers. You could book any one of those segments. Right. Now, there's some legalities and some things that have changed since then that kind of prevent that from happening in such a broad sense. But this one, (laughs) ready for this, was a flight from London Heathrow to Montreal, the Dorval Airport in Montreal, not the Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau Airport, to San Francisco, to Honolulu, to Itazuke Airbase, which we'll talk about that later on, in Japan, to Haneda. Well, what is Haneda today? Is that it was Tokyo International at the time? Mm-hmm. To Hong Kong. Okay. That's that's a long way to get to Hong Kong. Yes, it is. Most of the passengers probably weren't going all the way to Hong Kong. I'm like, that's the wrong direction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if they were. This was a very long way to get there, so... Maybe they were just trying to, like, do what you and Brendan do, because you're weird. You would definitely (laughs) do that. Oh, absolutely. But for the most part, usually that was because they had destinations in each one of these. They would pick up and drop off people at each one of them, but also crew bases in some of these areas and crew stops in certain areas, so they had to get crews. Right. That's how they scheduled crews. It's a weird thing. How you do it with not a lot of fleet, but a lot of destinations, this is how you do that. The captain for this flight was Bernard Dobson. He was 45 years old. We're talking about, by the way, the very last leg, I should clarify, the Tokyo International to Hong Kong leg during this accident, so way toward the end. Anyways, the captain for this flight was Bernard Dobson. He was 45 years old. At the time, he had 14,724 hours total, of which 2,155 hours were on the 707. The 707 wasn't necessarily new anymore, but it wasn't not new. In 66, it was still the beginning of the jet age, and the 707 was still relatively new. Like, for example, this airplane was six years old, so not that old. And the 747 and the 737 were not yet in existence. So, 
Still at the beginning of the jet age. The first officer was Edward Maloney. He was 33 years old. He had 3,663 hours total, which is not a whole lot, of which 2,073 were on the 707. So about 1,300 of his hours, not even, were on something else. Have you, and I, again, I, I might have missed it, but mm-hmm. what, what year? 66. 1966. Okay. Old. The second officer, the backup pilot, was Terrence Anderson. He was also 33 years old, same as the first officer. He had 3,906 hours total, which was a little more than the first officer, of which 2,538 hours were on the 707. However, which is also more than the first officer. So you'd think, why is this person not a first the first officer. officer? Well, that's actually because... He had a lot of hours split up, so he actually had like 300 and some odd hours as a navigator out of that. He had, I think, 300, 400 something hours as first officer, and then the rest of the hours as a backup pilot, which is what he was doing for this flight. So that's just how it breaks down. He wasn't officially a first officer for this flight. He has been in the past, but he doesn't have a lot of hours as a first officer. So, so be it. The flight engineer, the fourth and final crew member, was Ian Carter. He was 31 years old. He had 4,748 hours total, of which 1,773 were on the 707. So we have a captain, a first officer, a second officer, Mm -hmm. and uh, a flight engineer. Yes. So what was the job of the second officer? Be the backup pilot. Relief. Okay. Yep, just in case. Mostly because they were going on so many long legs, they had to trade out. A lot. That makes sense. Yeah. So, there you go. The flight was scheduled to arrive into Tokyo International on March 4th at 4.45 p.m. local time. However, however, and this is a very big however, due to bad weather and an out-of-service precision approach system, which we will talk about later. Okay. Damn it. I need to save something for the second half. Do you bring it up at all in your I part? don't remember. I did my notes yesterday. I don't think you bring it up at all. I don't imagine because you were a little surprised when I told you all about all the things. So I will bring that up in the second half. Unless because Christy brings it up before then. <laughs> that's okay, too. But we're going to save it because there's something very, very, very big that happened the day they were supposed to arrive into Tokyo. And they didn't arrive into Tokyo. If y'all frantically scroll back through the previous episodes and find where we put the date of March 4th, 1966, you'll figure out why. Not to precurse anything. <laughs> Thank you very much. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> now Miranda's making a face. Due to the bad weather, due to the quote-unquote out-of-service precision approach into the airport, the flight diverted to Itazuke Air Base in Fukuoka instead, landing at 6 o'clock p.m. local time. The flight then stayed overnight in Fukuoka before continuing to Tokyo the next morning, departing Fukuoka at 11.25 a.m. So not even a very early flight the next day. They just... (laughs) We'll talk about why later again, but there was a reason that they couldn't get to Tokyo for a while. They proceeded to Tokyo International via the Juliet 40 Lima Jet Airway via... Oshima, at flight level 290 or 29,000 feet, on an IFR or instrument flight rule flight plan, they landed at Tokyo International at 12.43 p.m., so only an hour and 20 minutes, basically, after they took off. It's not, so, not a very long flight. 
They were supposed to go into Tokyo International. Yes. They couldn't. Right. For whatever reason. Yes. The precision approach wasn't working. Bad yes. weather. Yes. So they landed at an air base instead. Yes. Stay the night. Yep. And then the next morning flew into Tokyo. Correct. Got it. So now they're getting ready for the next leg. Starting at one o'clock local time for 30 minutes, the captain and the first officer received a briefing, pre-flight briefing, for the segment to Hong Kong from the duty operations assistant in the International Departures Lounge. So literally just right there in the lounge with all the passengers. They just met with the local operations assistant. Went over the leg, the briefing for the Hong Kong flight. At 1.30 p.m., the operations assistant filed a flight plan with the operations section of the Tokyo Aeronautical Aids Office. So in other words, filed the flight plan, the local government. The flight was to be... An instrument flight rules or IFR flight plan to Hong Kong via Oshima on the Juliet Gulf 6 airway at flight level 310 or 31,000 feet. The scheduled departure time was scheduled for 1.45 p.m., which is just 15 minutes after they filed this, mind you. And the estimated flight time was 4 hours and 17 minutes down to Hong Kong. Wow. Mm-hmm. Now it would be like cut in half. No. Actually, really? it would probably be longer. Airplanes traveled faster back then. Believe it or not. Really? Yes, most aircraft, most jet aircraft had higher speeds back then than they do today. Well, that also has partially to do with like speed limits and stuff. But like speed limits, but also the way they design airplanes. They figured out that people don't care about actually shaving one to two hours off of time getting places. They would rather just get there comfortably and pay more money for it. I just feel like <laughs> getting from Japan to China shouldn't be that But it's long. the south end of China. Yeah. You'd actually be surprised on a map this is pretty far away. Hong Kong is pretty far away from Tokyo. Hmm. Today, it would take all of almost five hours. So, I'm going to fact check you real quick. Do it. See how close you are. By the way, while she's doing that, what aircraft is this on again? 707. Oh, it's an 07. Okay. It is a five hour and 20 minute hop. It's not much of a hop, really, but you know. But there you go. See? So a whole extra hour. At 1.42 p.m., the flight crew contacted the air traffic controller at Tokyo International requesting permission to start engines as well as clearance to climb out in VMC or visual meteorological conditions via Fuji Rebel Kushimoto. So, you can guess where Fuji is? Yeah. So, to clarify a little bit what all that means, because I know that was a little bit rapid there. Obviously, they're, they've requested to start the engines, but they've also requested to basically climb out visually using still a flight plan, but rather than doing an instrument departure, which is all we do today. They wanted to do this via a departure that included points at Fuji, Rebel, and Kushimoto. From what I read, investigators suspected they opted to do this so that the passengers could uh, see Mount Fuji? Yes. Almost Uh, certainly. Aw, man! No, not what you think. No. No, but whenever they deviate like that to see stuff, stuff goes bad. Yeah, but it's things, not a deviation. It was their flight plan. It's also yeah, a regular departure but like, procedure. If that's like it's regular the reason, then I, I don't know. It's not the issue. Well, I okay. To be fair, I know what happens. I don't know how it happens. It's fair. But I know what happens. It's fair. I'm not saying they're crashing into Mount Fuji. That's not what I'm saying. Anyways. Although, with Christie's face, that probably means that they they don't. They don't. We'll get there. Anyways. Clearance was given for all of the requests. 1.50 p.m. after the engines were started, the aircraft taxied from the ramp toward the runway for takeoff. 
157, so seven minutes later, the air traffic controller cleared the flight for takeoff and instructed the flight to make, quote, a right turn after takeoff, end quote. The flight took off from Tokyo International at 1.58 p.m. with 113 passengers and 11 crew on board from runway 33 left. After takeoff, the flight flew over... Bear with me here, because <laughs> they put a lot of Japanese names in this report. So I'm going to do what I can. Anyway, after takeoff, the flight flew over Sametsu, then made a right turn and climbed as it proceeded to a point between Yokohama and Ofuna. So flying away from the airport, but made a right turn. The flight then made another right turn and flew over a point approximately 13 kilometers to the northwest of Odawara City and approximately 5 kilometers north of Mount Myojindake at an altitude of 5,100 meters. And yes, the report was in meters. Oh, yes. to be fair, <laughs> everyone else goes by meters. Yep. But we feet, changed that now, but... Yes, but feet are more accurate in flying. Yes, I realize that, but at this and, point, 90% of the world went by meters. Yes, but the aircraft were still reading in feet. They just, in the report, they wrote it in meters. Anyways, on a heading of 246 degrees, with an indicated airspeed between 320 and 370 knots. Pretty wide range. <laughs> the flight then flew over Gotemba City on a heading of around 298 degrees at about 4,900 meters, and an indicated airspeed between 320 and 370 knots. Then everything happens very fast from here. It was at this time that the flight suddenly shook heavily. Very, very, very heavily. Oh, I remember what happens now. I, I cannot stress enough how heavily this airplane actually shook in that moment. Seconds later, the aircraft was falling from the sky seen trailing white vapor and losing altitude rapidly over the Takigahara region, or area. Witnesses on the ground watched as large parts of the aircraft began to break away over, this one's, this one's hard, Tsuchiyadai and Ichirimatsu. I'm trying my best. And no, I, I'm, you're not, doing I'm not doing good. too bad. You're doing pretty good. <laughs> I mean, Japanese is mostly phonetic yeah, anyways. So. Yes, it is. The way it's written out with our alphabet, yes. As the aircraft continued to fall over Tarobo at about 2,000 meters above the ground, it was seen that the forward fuselage suddenly broke away from the rest of the aircraft. The mid-fuselage section, along with the wings, fell together in a relatively flat spin to the right, eventually crashing into the forest near Gotemba City at around 2.15 p.m., the forward fuselage crashed about 300 meters away in the forest, being nearly completely crushed and destroyed on impact. All of this was around the foot of Mount Fuji, but not actually on Mount Fuji. Mount Fuji. This was in the forest surrounding the area. A post-crash fire ensued, which destroyed everything. As rescuers arrived, it was very quickly apparent that none of the 113 passengers and 11 crew survived the accident. So something caused the airplane to shake to the point that it got overstressed and fell apart. Yes. Okay. And now it's your part. And now it's my turn. This investigation was performed by... I have no idea, actually. It's an ICAO circular again. Yep, so I'm not 100% sure who performed the investigation. Probably the Japanese would be my guess. 
Some court of inquiry, maybe. I'm not sure. It was not detailed in the report. Pretty sure the British were heavily involved. Yeah. Since this was their aircraft. Yeah. Well, and it might have been like a, a joint effort between the British, us, the US. and Japan. Yeah. Because it was an American-made aircraft. Yes. We'll talk about why the U.S. was also super heavily involved in this one in the second half. Okay. This aircraft was not required to be equipped with, but was equipped with a, a, a flight data recorder. FDR. No CVR, though, huh? Too ha- early. However. No. <laughs> and there's a big however. It was stored in the floor of the cockpit and was destroyed by the fire. Who does that? Remember, this wasn't required, nor was it regulated yet. So I, that, Well, they figured pretty fast that they shouldn't put it under the floor of the cockpit. Yeah, it's pretty distinctive why it would, didn't work when they found it, because <laughs> the cockpit section fell separately, and they were very quick to point out that that was completely destroyed yeah. in the report. <laughs> For a reason. That being said, one of the passengers had an 8mm Cine camera with color film, and it was recording. They actually filmed the whole thing as much as they could anyway it helped them determine a lot of things it recorded tokyo international airport the tanzawa mountains lake yamanaka then skipped two frames before showing the aircraft interior then abruptly ending that's nice testing of the camera proved that a physical shock of 7.5 g's was required to recreate the same film feeding malfunction that would cause it to skip two frames. That's Which means that a lot of G's. The G's that happened to this aircraft was at least that, if not more. From the data on the camera, investigators were able to put together the flight altitude, path, and airspeed, as well as that some kind of shock occurred at the end of the recording. Mm-hmm. We will talk about this again later on, but Tokyo didn't have good radar at that point. Oh, I don't even mention that at all. We'll talk about it later on because it was very pertinent to the other big detail that I keep alluding to. In addition to that, investigators had the wreckage distribution and wind data. From these and air drag experiments used as models, it was determined that the right wing broke away at about the same time as the engine pylons and Ford fuselage, which were not with the main wreckage area. Mm -hmm. At about the same time, the vertical stabilizer and port horizontal stabilizer also broke away to the east. Investigators were not able to determine at which point the starboard, outer wing, and engine pylons broke away, though it was after the tail components. Investigators performed a metallurgical study on the vertical stabilizer and found that although there were some fatigue cracks in a bolt hole, the final fracture was caused by a sudden substantial load that the material was not designed to handle. Not bueno. The combined- I bet I can tell you what it is. What do you think it is? Turbulence? Uh-huh. Which is so rare. I- I- I got so much engineering in this, let me keep going. Yeah, that's fine. The combined data from the wreckage distribution and the fracture mechanics led to the conclusion that the aircraft broke up due to a mostly leftward load. Evidence from witness statements also led to the conclusion that the cause of the breakup was due to an abnormally high gust load and resulting high inertia force in excess of the design limit. Given the proximity to mountains, not just Mount Fuji, but mountain ranges, An investigation of the air currents in the area was performed by the Meteorological Research Institute using a wind tunnel outfitted with a terrain model of the area. The wind tunnel had a 1.5 meter diameter and a wind velocity of 2 meters per second. The whole thing was scaled down to 1 to 50,000 ratio. Now, you might wonder how you can accurately predict wind behavior when using such a scaled down model, and this is actually something that I personally have experience with. They had a wind tunnel where she went to school. Yes. Yes. 
It is in a building that my school doesn't own. Ako Taco? Cool. In fluid dynamics models with different scales, you can predict behavior in a simulation as long as you keep the same Reynolds number as the full-scale model. Now, what the heck is that, you might ask? The Reynolds number is a dimensionless quantity equal to the fluid density times the flow speed times the length of the model divided by the dynamic viscosity of the fluid. There are other variations of this substituting in other things like kinematic viscosity and such, but that's the most generic form of a Reynolds number. Okay. And all of the dimensions, so like, say the speed is in meters per second and the length is in meters, all of those, the way they're arranged, completely cancel out and it's a dimensionless number. In this case, the fluid is air. Mm. Air is a fluid. Yep. And in this case, the value that is different between the real-life version and the model is the length, meaning that the other values have to be adjusted accordingly such that the Reynolds number remains the same. So if one value goes up, the other, another value goes down, or whatever you have the ability to adjust. You could also do this in, say, like some kind of water tunnel, because that would change the viscosity and all of such things. As long as you are controlling what the Reynolds number is, you can accurately predict fluid behavior. The easiest one to control in this instance is airflow speed. Yep. So that's likely what they changed, but they didn't specify. They didn't give all the details of this experiment. They did specify that lapse rate and wind shear considerations would not be accurately predicted within the confines of this experiment. So it has its limitations. The result of this experiment showed that 20 kilometers leeward of the summit, there's a reverse current in the lower layers which is concerning because this causes the upper layers to descend over a range from the summit, and, but there were no eddies or turbulence further than 20 kilometers. The air blowing leeward in those 20 kilometers is found to have sudden variation in wind velocity and with a higher average wind velocity than the surrounding current. This is called turbulence. Yes. As it turns out. Yep. This then prompted an investigation into the formation of mountain waves due to the Kiso mountain range and the Akaishi mountain range in the windward of Mount Fuji. Mm-hmm. Which means it comes before Mount Fuji in the direction of wind. Right. Leeward and windward are opposite. Yes. This analysis found a stable layer below three to 4,000 meters with winds of 60 to 70 knots blowing at right angles to the mountain ranges on March 5th, the day of the accident. Mm-hmm. Weather satellite pictures taken at 1330 hours on March 5th showed clouds to have formed in mountain waves, but there were no clouds in the lee of the two mountain ranges due to the air being too dry. But those are mountain ranges and they crash near Mount Fuji, an isolated peak. One of the things that makes it so majestic. Yep. Other similar isolated peak, uh, Mount Rainier. Yes. Studies suggest that even isolated peaks such as Mount Fuji can create mountain waves. So now you have mountain waves coming from two mountain ranges to the west and Mount Fuji. Right. This ain't looking good. Nope. No, it's not. As we've discussed previously, mountain waves often cause rotors to form, basically horizontal tornadoes, which come with severe turbulence. This would have been further exacerbated by the fact that the air in the lee of the mountain was six degrees Celsius cooler than the surrounding free air. All of this causes what is called clear air turbulence. There is no storm or any such indication no clouds anything that would show that would cause turbulence right which has become such a danger in the modern day actually especially when you live in places like we do uh, with mountains that there's a lot of modern systems built into aircraft now that 
are intended to detect when there's severe turbulence ahead of the aircraft as well as in an area. Now, of course, that does not always save you from hitting bad turbulence. It can form rapidly. Right. There were no pyreps in the area? Nope. They did have reports of from four other aircraft out of 179 reports of turbulence that were severe that day, but they couldn't point to any specific area because of those severe turbulence reports. So that's it. It was brought down by clear turbulence. Which is so unbelievably rare, and you should not be spooked by this either because modern aircraft are built to withstand that. We have learned a lot of things about meteorology and aircraft and fluid dynamics that allows us to make aircraft in ways that don't get overstressed by turbulence the way that this did. Now, that doesn't mean that... You won't end (laughs) up in the ceiling. Right, because we've talked about that, but... But the plane won't break apart from it. The plane will survive. That's the good news. This is why you should wear your seatbelt. Always wear your seatbelt, because clear air turbulence can happen at any time, and the occurrences of clear air turbulence are only increasing with global warming. Yep. Yes. The, this flight was really like the exception to the whole clear air turbulence thing. But mind you, this was very deadly. Obviously. No, we've talked about it once before. Yes. It's, it really doesn't happen that often. It's, it's rare enough that obviously when it does happen, it's world changing for aviation because that means we've done something wrong. Right. But also, it just, for it to be deadly is so unbelievably rare. Turbulence just isn't usually deadly. So, this one was very deadly, having destroyed the entire airplane and caused everybody... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On board to perish. Unfortunately, this was just one of a string. So we'll talk about that in the second half. After this quick break. Brickety break! And we're back. And we're back. Okay. I'm going to read the findings section verbatim because it's just three little paragraphs. There's no points. And then we're going to do the super short probable cause. And then there's no recommendations. We talked a little bit about what's changed but I am going to talk about all the other crazy things associated with this accident that aren't mentioned in the report. Solid. So findings first. Fluid? Yes. <laughs> that was I'm, dumb. I'm hilarious. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> all right. Verbatim, the findings. Gulf-Alpha-Papa-Foxtrot Echo was making a normal flight towards Mount Fuji till immediately before the accident in such clear weather that Mount Fuji could be seen from Tokyo. The evidence provided by the aircraft wreckage, the injuries to the victims, and the evidence from the color film suggest that the aircraft suddenly encountered abnormally severe gust loads, exceeding the design limit load over Gotemba City, and disintegrated in the air in a very short period of time. Although it was impossible to forecast the existence over Gotemba City of turbulence sufficiently severe to destroy the aircraft, and the investigation could not discover evidence which could verify meteorologically, the existence of such turbulence, 
it cannot be denied that turbulence might have become extremely severe. If it, no, really? Yeah. If it is assumed that a strong mountain wave system was present in the lee of Mount Fuji. That's it. That's all they wrote. Which is true. The other instance where this has been very well understood later is wake turbulence because the effects are very similar to waves, mountain waves, where it is a very sudden change of wind direction. Yes, and it makes yes a rotors. circular yes yeah, rotors. circular motion. Right, mountain Which, waves are just on a much larger scale. Yeah, so if you ever go, those of you who live in California, if you ever go to LAX, yeah, and go plane spotting, you and if you know, you know, You're right. right, right next to In and Out. Right. If you know, um, right next you know. to the airport, you're like right next to the airport fence. They yes. go, the planes go right over you. Mm-hmm. With most of the airplanes, if you look at the trees, yeah, they start whipping in circles. They whip like the palms from the palm trees whip around in circles. Yeah, and they do this about every, you know, minute after ever after every airplane passes. Yeah, depending on the size of airplane, much larger whips than others. Yes, <laughs> but. That's that's what it is. It's wake turbulence, yep. which is the exact the thing that we're talking about. Is the same on a bigger scale. Yes, yes. Mountain waves are the same thing, just much bigger scale for a different reason too. It's caused by a different phenomenon. Yeah, it's not an airplane. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's caused by a very different phenomenon. But it makes sense. meteorological phenomenon. Yeah, it's well, still caused by the disruption of air because there's something in the way. Yes, right, right. One now, instance is a plane. The other is um a whole mountain range or two. Right. Plus another mountain. Right. Now, places like Colorado have a lot of mountain wave. We tend to get a lot of turbulence because, you know. There's a whole mountain range. (laughs) That's what happens when you fly over the mountains. I have been through some really nasty turbulence flying over the mountains. But the airplane's not going to break apart. I'm confident in that because it just doesn't happen. And we fly thousands of airplanes over those mountains every day. So that's just the truth. We also understand meteorology and aircraft together as a concept much, much better. We also have a lot better ways of predicting weather. And at the time, like they stated in here, they had no way of being able to predict where there was going to be severe turbulence. Now, it can happen fast, and we don't always catch that, but we can generally assume when clear air turbulence is going to happen due to meteorological phenomena. Yep. So we have science. A much, yes, science and stuff. And we have a lot more data to work with these days than we used to. So science and stuff. Do you want to do the probable cause? Yes. Okay. The probable cause of the accident is that the aircraft suddenly encountered abnormally severe turbulence over Gatemba City, which imposed a gust load considerably in excess of the design limit. Period. Full stop. That was the whole thing. Just means, guess what? The airplane <laughs> wasn't meant for this, and it broke apart. Yep, pretty much. Okay, let's talk about the wild and crazy other things. This was a yeah, not the fun f- four was hours. going on? So, unfortunately... Oh, God. 1966 was a really, really, really horrible year for aviation accidents in, in Japan. Japan. Why don't I remember the f- you're talking about? Have we co- we've covered it, yeah? We've one covered of them. one of them. Oh. There are. Hold on. Oh, God. Let me make sure I read this out correctly. Five fatal aircraft disasters, bad ones, in 1966. In Japan. Four commercial and one military. In Japan. Three of those four commercial ones occurred within a month of each other. Oh, no. Two of those three occurred within 24 hours. This one? 
and Canadian Pacific Airlines Flight 402. Oh, we covered that one, yeah? Yes. We covered remember? that in episode 176. It was going the other direction. It was coming from Southern Asia, going up to Tokyo, the day before on March 4th, and it was trying to do an approach to Tokyo International. Using the ILS. Using the ILS, but the weather was bad. It then smacked into the seawall, and- Oh, yeah! They still don't entirely know why. Why? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember now. But and all flights were diverted away from Tokyo yeah, International at the time. Really bad fog and right? Yes. And they didn't know if the ILS was to blame. So they had to do a test flight. They had to do a test flight the next morning before they could send anybody back into Tokyo. I remember so now. <laughs> this airplane was actually affected by that. And as a matter of fact, there's video footage apparently somewhere of our accident airplane we're talking about today taxiing past the other airplane still smoldering on the seawall. Oh, that's horrifying. Okay. How wild is that? That's crazy. That's, <laughs> that's bananas. On its way to take off. Okay, now I remember. <laughs> I, like, I was like, what are you talking about? I don't have no idea. I do not remember anything happening in 1966. The third one we haven't talked about yet, and actually, if there's a report for it and somebody wants to suggest it, wink, 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 nudge, nudge, it's pretty friggin' important. It was Al Nippon Airways Flight 60, which at the time was Japan's deadliest accident and one of the deadliest in history at the time. It was only a 727. It wasn't even a 707, which this was theoretically larger, but it was a domestic flight, 727, that also had really horrible things happen to it hmm. back on February 4th, so a month before. <sighs> so I just read the cause. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Isn't it wild? Isn't that fun? Or lack thereof. Right. Oh, I don't like those. <laughs> <laughs> but when they say those things, there's always still something interesting to find out. That's why I like those. Um, there's no report. So. Damn. So don't recommend it. Let there's me read about it real quick. There's got to be some kind of report somewhere. Nope. This is a very short Wikipedia page. Okay. Wonderful. Well, look at the ASN because sometimes. It's... I looked at the oh, ASN. Well, never mind. Anyways. Al Nippon Airways, ANA, Flight 60, was making a domestic commercial flight from Sapporo Chitose Airport to Tokyo Haneda. Mm -hmm. On February 4th, all 133 on board died when the plane mysteriously crashed into Tokyo Bay. Yep. Quite similar. During clear weather conditions while on a night approach. Oh, so turbulence. Don't know. This accident Probably was the not. worst involving a single aircraft and was also the deadliest in Japan at the time until ANA Flight 58 crashed five years later. Did we cover ANA 58? We have not covered any ANA flights. No. And then eventually comes Japan Airlines 123. <laughs> uh, yeah. We just, have covered that one. To just overshadow everything else that's ever happened in Japan and will ever happen in Japan. Remind me, what happened with Japan 123? The 747 that lost its tail. Yes, but... How? Deadliest single... Well, I remember that part, but I don't know how it lost its tail. Structural failure. From what? Bulkhead burst? Was that what it was? Burst? I don't think it was a bulkhead burst, was it? I don't remember. They flew around without a tail for a while. I thought it was like turbulence caused it to break apart, but there was already a crack. You're going to make me go look this up. Probably fatigue. Yes. Welcome back to the fatigue podcast. Yes. Almost 90% sure, almost. By the way, we got, um, I don't remember who sent it to us, but we got this really cool like crocheted thing. This is welcome back to the fatigue podcast. I love it. It's and it cool. has turtles and, and lightning bolts for electricity on it. Yes. I love it. And thank you to the person who sent it to us. And I, I'm so sorry. We will look to, it up. I'm going to look it up right now because they... Okay. They messaged Yes, it was the bulkhead. Okay, it was the bulkhead. 
cool. It bur- it burst, yeah. Yeah. Still from still. from from fatigue. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was from fatigue. a tail strike seven years earlier. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's right. Anyway. Anyways. Flying in clear weather, ANA Flight 60 was only a few minutes away from Haneda when its pilot radioed that he could land visually without instruments, and then it disappeared from the radar. Yeah. Villagers along the shore and the pilot of another plane said they saw flames in the sky at about 7 p.m., the moment they were due to land. Fishermen and the Japanese Defense Force boats picked up bodies from the murky waters of the bay. They had retrieved approximately 20 of them when an airline spokesman announced the fuselage had been found with scores of bodies inside. He said this led to the belief that all aboard were dead. Grappling hooks from a Coast Guard boat brought up the wreckage. The tail of the aircraft, including at least two of the three engines, a vertical stabilizer and horizontal stabilizer, were recovered mostly intact. The rest of the aircraft disintegrated on impact. The death toll of 133 made it the world's deadliest single aircraft accident at the time, as well as the second deadliest aviation accident behind the 1960 New York mid-air collision. The death toll on a single aircraft would eventually be surpassed by a C-130 shot down in May 1968, killing 155 people, then followed by Japan Airlines Flight 123, which crashed 19 years later outside of Tokyo, killing 520. Which is still the current record, and I hope we never break it. The cause for the accident was never determined since the aircraft was never equipped with flight recorders. Yep. The accident was one of five fatal air disasters, four commercial and one military in Japan in 1966. Yes, I'm aware. I've got more things to talk about. <laughs> Before you do that, it was Muriel. Ah, yes, Muriel. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. We love it. I'll it's send amazing. you a picture of it to make sure you know we got it. But yeah. Yes. So that's all I have on ANA Flight 60. Yeah, that's the other one that happened that month before. It's a bad time. It was a really bad time in Japan, and Japan has had really bad history with single aircraft accidents. I don't know why. They also have a lot of aviation. <laughs> yes. Still to this day. They fly wide bodies domestically on very short flights. Why? Because they have, they can. There's a lot of people and they have to go places. That's true. They also use trains a lot more than they use planes. Don't get me wrong. Oh yeah, they use fast travel trains. But they also do fly like triple sevens from one place to another. It's wild. Anyways, more things to talk about on BOAC 911. I'm going to read this part verbatim from the Wikipedia page, the most wonderful of all sources. That's also what I just read everything about Flight 60 from. Yes. However, I can't dispute this part. This isn't written in the report anywhere, but it has quite horrific implications. This flight, this is why the Americans were involved in this investigation. I guarantee it. Okay. The victims included a group of 75 American associates with the Thermo King Company of Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Mm Mm-hmm. On a two-week company-sponsored tour of Japan and Southeast Asia, there were 26 couples traveling together in the group, and a total of 63 children were orphaned by this accident. Ooh. So all those couples apparently had kids, and unfortunately, they did not return. Ouch. That was a rough one. Apparently, there was a couple other relatively famous people on board, and then there were four other... No. Yes. Five other people that were supposed to be on board that were famous that were actually location scouting for a James Bond film. Hmm. You live, you only live twice, which was in 1967. And they, at the last minute, canceled their tickets for a ninja demonstration, supposedly. Dude. That's a good reason. Good reason. Good call. Good call. You know what? Someone was like, Dodge I, that just, bullet. I just feel like we need to go to that ninja demonstration. Yeah. And you know what? You made a good choice. Dodge that bullet. For more for more than one reason. 
So there was a lot of things involved with this, a lot of surrounding things involved with this accident that weren't in the report, which is what's so wild about it. And I'm sure that's why so many people suggested it. What didn't really have, although the clear air turbulence thing is absolutely crazy, because that just really just doesn't happen that often. <laughs> it's so wildly rare throughout history. But getting less and less rare. Yes, but it's not causing accidents. Again, it's not causing... It's causing incidents. Yes, but it's, it's causing not... people to go through roofs of airplanes. But it does not cause aircraft to break up and flight and fall from the sky. It does not. It does not. So, things have changed, obviously. This was wild on its own, but then you think about everything else that happened around it, and it just made the story that much crazier. Well, if, and if you're I... a time traveler, don't time travel back to Japan in 1966, apparently. Or fly on airplanes, at least, in 1966 in Japan. Or, like, don't go to Japan between for a, a while. Yeah. <laughs> like, you think about, like, how bad it was in the 40s, too. So, like... Well, yes. What's crazy to me is from... Totally different thing. From 1945 till now, Tokyo has become, like, 10,000% the size of what it was in the 1940s. It's wildly... Like, their population exploded. It's crazy. Yeah. Japan is such a populated country, and Tokyo in and of itself is a massive city. It did not even used to rank as one of the largest cities on the planet in the 1940s, and now it's the busiest, the largest, and the most populated. Yep. Another reason why I think that we, the Americans, got involved is also, it is a Boeing aircraft. Yes, of course. That had a structural failure. That's the obvious one. Yeah. So, of course, they wanted to know, and they wanted to fix it, right? Yeah, because Boeing should be like, um, that shouldn't happen. Right. And 707s continued to fly and not have that problem. And, of course, they built a lot of other airplanes that didn't have that problem, so they figured that out. However, I would say the fact that most of the people on the airplane were Americans probably had them very, very under the microscope. Yeah, I, I would say I would agree with that, too. I would just be like, just so we all are aware, like, it's also like an American-made aircraft that, like, broke apart. Yes, of course. <laughs> For what seemed to be, like, no reason. Of course. Which is no bueno. Nope. Freaking McDonald Douglas. Right. Bowen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the crazy thing about this is all three of the accidents that happened within a month of one another all technically have undetermined causes. That's just crazy to me. I mean, for this one, they pretty much figured out what happened. Yeah, they, they, they said it with a high likelihood of probability. But that's why it's a probable cause. Right. Because they don't 100% know? Right. And the whole finding section, the reason that I read it out verbatim is because the entire finding section was just to state, we don't know, but we absolutely could not rule this out. Right. Love how that's worded. Yes. That's literally all it was. So technically, in a very technical sense, all three were undetermined. undetermined. Canadian, the Canadian Pacific flight also technically had a probable cause of pilot error. Yes. Eventually, but was still not entirely certain. Determined. Well, because they couldn't, I, they didn't have flight recorders, right? Mm -hmm. Like that flight didn't have flight recorders. So there was like no way for them to know. Right. Which, by the way, I can't find my notes from that episode, which is real high key suspicious to me. Mystery episode. I'm sure I have mine somewhere. Who knows? We could probably just go back and listen to it. Uh, yeah, of course. When did we record that one? When did we do that one? I don't even know. A long time ago. 
I can tell um, you when it came out. It came out in March. March. March, March, March. Gotta go Last March? This Got March. It. Yeah, we recorded it around February 19th. We recorded it on February 19th. There you go. Because I have notes from that. I don't. Okay. Which is weird to me. They might be on my work account. You know what? I think that's exactly what it is. They're on your work account. Hold on. Can confirm. Please hold. I have to look it up. Otherwise, it's going to drive me nuts. So that that's it, huh? That's it. The OAC 911. Yes. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yes, my notes are on my work account. Of course. Should we do the answer to the trivia questions now? Since the one after Yeah, next week's going to be, be a, a crap show. Okay. So, listen here, people. Pay attention. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you. Let's ya, talk about me. Let's talk about the newsletter. Okay. So, uh, let me find it real quick because I got to... I guess I could just, you know, look at it on my, uh, on the website, because, like, I have the power to do that. Big wrinkle brain. Do, 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 do. Sorry. Big All right, here brain. it is. Okay. So, actually, the ones for this month are, if you've been paying attention to the post episodes, so if you don't have action, like, actual, like, you can't get to the post episodes, you're not going to know a good portion of this. So, the first one is, what is the estimated... Time that Christy will finish her giant cross-stitch project, which it has changed. It has. It's changed in the last 24 hours. I'm sure it has. So someone said 2037, which is close, but someone said June of 2024, and I went, <laughs> oh, you're so cute. You are very wrong. Sorry. At, at about nice try. Ten, at about 10 years. Um, The yeah. current, as of today, estimated completion date is March 19th, 2034. So there's that. Yes, so that's the estimated date. Now, that has changed, like... It changes every day yeah. by just a little bit. Well, it changed by a whole year. year at one point. Yes. But oh, well, I mean, it's changed by a year in, like, the last month because I've been stitching like a mad person. Yes, but the year doesn't change that often. No. So. Okay, when are Nick and Christy getting married? They're getting married in March of 2024 march 29th it's a friday we got a discount because it's on a friday and it's in march which is a snowy month yes the snowiest month yes but it's inside but it is inside and most of the people going live here so yeah yeah and we all live relatively close to it yes i forgot to add kylie to the guest list okay they were going over the guest list yesterday and they were trying to figure out people that they forgot (laughs) i know there's always more don't take it personally it's it's out of sight out of mind uh, and Nick is going to be better equipped to answer this because I don't even think I remember this, but that's okay. What was the year of the deadliest commercial aviation crash in history? 1977. Yeah, that's what I thought. Mm-hmm. Someone, I'm fairly certain that's 1977. Someone said something earlier than that. I'd have to look at the answers, but um, I was like, yeah, no. And then what accident jump started crew resource management? It was actually that the, same that one. accident, which by the yep. way was Tenerife. Yeah, it was the Tenerife accident. Yeah. Um, and yes, it was 1977. Was it? Okay. Mm-hmm. I couldn't remember if the accident was in 77 or if the report came out in 77. No, the accident I think the report in... came out in 80. Yeah. Well, it was a big crash, so. Um, if you're wondering about the deadliest single aircraft. That's different. It was 1985. Right. The deadliest year of aviation history. Right. Shocker. Also, if you're a time traveler, don't fly in 1985. The wild thing to me, though, is the fact that Tenerife included two 747s, but the single 747 of Japan Airlines Flight 123 was almost as many people. It was 63 people short. 
But you also have to remember that not everyone died at Tenerife. I know. Yeah. But almost everyone did. So, um, yeah, okay. So Leo answered, and he said 1972. I don't know where you got that date from, but that's not it. Uh, Close, but no cigar. Yeah, he's like, my memory may be hazy, but I think 1972 had more deaths, but 1985 had more deaths in the commercial sector. I think you meant, I, th- I, th- I think you thought we meant a single aircraft. No, it was like of history. It's mm-hmm. Tenerife. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because um, for number four, he said, my opinion is actually different from the expected answer of Tenerife. Uh, he said United Airlines 173 was the actual answer, which we did cover, by the way. That was the one that had issues out in Oregon. The one that crashed on Burnside? Yep. Mm-hmm. Due to crew resource management. So, yeah. yeah. That one didn't kill everybody. Um, and then the other person who answered the trivia questions, please hold. I think it was actually, it was uh, Sublight. Sublight. Mm-hmm. And he said 2037 on, he was the one who said 2037 on your cross stitch. Mm-hmm. Which is the closest one. It's close. And then he said spring 2024 for your wedding. Which is which correct. Which is correct. He also said 1972 for the deadliest air. What happened in 1972? Let me go look. It had to be a single aircraft incident. Because was, that, was that American? No. No. Let, just, just hold on. There's, Wikipedia has a very handy dandy list that gets updated every couple days. And then the accident that jump started, he said Tenerife, which was correct. So, Unless we're wrong, but I'm pretty no, sure it was we're 1977. Right. It's 1977. It was March 12th, 1977. Yeah. American Airlines Flight 96, but everyone evacuated safely. Yeah, because American 191 was 1979. Y'all need to tell us what accident you're thinking of, because I don't know. I don't know what. Maybe we need to cover it. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously. What makes you keep thinking 1972? Because it's not that. Yeah, because. Is that a Mandela effect? Maybe. (laughs) Maybe you thought it was 1972. Did you discover a Mandela effect? Uh, Span tax. Yeah, but that was not that big. That was 155. Oh, that crashed in Tenerife. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you're thinking of the wrong Tenerife. I don't know. Yeah, maybe you flip flopped it. I don't know. I was like, I, I, I was like, maybe we're wrong. <laughs> I was like, no. Oh, no. and then Eastern Airlines 401. Yeah, but that okay. was what still Dude, not that I money. I don't know. I don't know. Y'all need to tell us what flight happened in 1972 yeah. that you're thinking of, because you're yeah. not correct. Man, Spantax had a bad history. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, thank you to those of you who did answer the trivia questions. If yes, you're thanks. wondering where those are, they're in our newsletters. You can sign up to get it at the beginning of the month. And then after I send them out, I always put them on the website under the newsletters tab. So if you did not sign up, you can also get access there. And there, it's there's like a little section for trivia questions. And if you would like to answer them, you just email us the answers. And if you want us to critique your answers... You have to answer them within the first week, week and a half, basically, of the newsletter going out. Yes. Because, for example, we're recording this early with the answers, but if other people answer between now and when this episode actually comes out, then... But usually it's like right after I send it out, people answer. Yes, yes, usually. No, I just read the trivia question, and it's what year was the deadliest in commercial aviation history? That. Was 1985. Was 1985. That was the deadliest year. Oh, did I? Which is a different that? Oh, (laughs) god damn it, Miranda. That's okay. (laughs) Listen here, Linda. But you were still wrong. My brain. 
Well, someone said 1985. Leo said 1985. Oh, okay. Then that person was right. But the other two were wrong. I definitely misread that. Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> my brain did the thing my brain does. Anyway, misread it. next month, there is a question that doesn't have a right answer. There are two, actually. Just so you we know. We actually need to make more. I know. We can do that at the later post episode, which is short. Yes. <laughs> Uh, by the way, we are talking about the end portion of our trip for this current post episode we're doing after this episode. So if you want to hear the bullshit that happened <laughs> with us getting home from Europe. Those last couple of days. Uh, were you got to be at least a $5 patron. So, and I'm telling you, it's crazy. All right. I almost fell out down an escalator. <laughs> it was a whole thing. Okay. So. You make that sound like that was the biggest thing. It was not the biggest thing. No, I just was almost died trying to go after my suitcase. Wild so stuff. make sure that you're signed up for that. Thank you to all of our patrons, but also thank you to all of you for listening to this episode. We do appreciate it. Remember, if you'd like to send us feedback, please feel free to do so. Like we said, we do try to address it when it gets sent to us. We don't always address it, but it, it depends on the kind of feedback, right? Like I'm not leaving the show. No. There have been a few comments about that. I am not past. leaving. It's been we're, a long time since I've seen one of those. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, they must have been listening to early stuff too, because mm-hmm. like I've calmed down a lot. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. And also like, we're not going to change how we name things. We're not going to change pretty much like the structure of the show is not going to change. So just be aware of that. If that's your feedback, we probably just won't answer you. Yeah. But otherwise we do appreciate like when we do screw up, like with the code. Thanks. Thank you. Yes, thanks. We're sorry. Because we make mistakes. That do be happening every now and again. So, thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Podcast and on Twitter at HardlandingsPod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at heartlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.